Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Malidoma Somme. Chapter 7, The Rebellion Begins. The first three years in the seminary were lived almost outside my body. There are certain wires in the psyche that one must cut under certain abusive circumstances in order to survive. Unlike the school at the Mission Hill where most of the brutality came from the staff, here it could come from any direction, students included. Among the boys, secret anarchy reigned and the fear of being tormented sexually or physically kept me in a state of strained vigilance and emotional numbness. In the boarding school at Nancy, one had to grow up fast. It was not until I was transferred to the higher division that my plight began to be bearable. The main cause for my improved situation was the shift in my physical appearance. By now, my breasts had receded. Even though they were still lumpy, they did not protrude from inside my clothes and I was less ashamed of myself. I had also developed a certain amount of physical strength and size. I was more manly than before, more aggressive. But I did not know that my former condition had taught me deceit, conceit, anger, pretense, boldness and aggressiveness as expressions of my frustrations. I channeled most of my rage into my studies, which all of a sudden took off. Studying hard was a way to feel vindicated and at the same time keep myself busy. Every new subject came with a book that opened up a strange new world into which I could escape. It was easier to stay there in that imaginary freedom than to go out and face the boring reality of the sanctified realm. But though fascinating, the world of the book was an alien place altogether. History focused on the white man's deeds and was a tale of violence and death. It was about war and the strife that arose from man's greed for power. It was about the instability and insecurity of an existence where one's life was constantly at risk, either to serve the ego of another life or to be plainly wasted. From the pages of our history books sprang figures of violence and terror who were presented as symbols of strength and models of civilized humanity. Occasionally, a bright spot shone through. I saw the French Revolution as an example of humanity's reaction against oppression, but most of the time, history seemed one long tale of irrational violence. We learned that war was peace and peace was war. Qui para passem para helium. If you want peace, get ready for war. Our history teacher always insisted that we understand the meaning of power and of peace and freedom, but these values were presented to us only in Western terms. Utilizing the white man's violent philosophy, even the terrible commerce of slavery became, became comprehensible, justifiable even. In our history books, there were illustrations of ships, 
full of slaves heading west. All of this sounded unreal to me until some of the students who came from the coast confirmed having heard stories from their grandfathers about people who were deported and never returned. One subject we never studied was African history. In our classroom, the African continent was mentioned only in the context of the white man's involvement with it. Otherwise, the world was clearly run by whites. From the testimonies in our textbooks, the whites were the great thinkers, the great inventors. Our teachers stressed scientific discoveries. Johannes Gutenberg discovered printing. Galileo unlocked the workings of the heavens. Newton solved the mysteries of gravity and physics. Everything they did eventually enabled God to come to Africa. And we began to understand why our people were considered primitives. I came to realize that wherever the white man went, he brought trouble because he had no scruples. He brought a kind of meanness that no one could face because it made no sense to anyone and eventually he took over because no one loved blood and killing more than he did. Sadly, our young minds were being formed by the vivid images of death and suffering in these books. history class, Father Joe, speaking about the beauty of colonialism, likened it to a mother trying to protect her son. Out of kindness, France had taken a large portion of Africa under her wing, and that was a heavy burden. We must remember, he added, that resistance always brings havoc, chaos, confusion and ultimately destruction. Europeans came into Africa for the purpose of bringing to fruition the immense wealth that had been kept dormant by the ignorance of the African people. When the soldiers arrived, there was resistance everywhere. When you resist a peaceful mission, you invite force. When force renders you inoffensive, it reminds you at the same time of the sweet taste of peace. If force was utilized from time to time in Africa, it was not out of any pleasure in bloodshed. A truly civilized person hates shedding blood, but at the same time knows how to defend himself. I raised my hand to speak. I felt stabbed in my spirit and thought that after all, this was a class, a time for the exchange of thoughts. Father Joe motioned to me with his head. What is your question? I don't know if it is a question, but it goes like this. If I come to your father's house, and I want to get in, even though your father does not want me as a guest. Do I force the door anyway? Father Joe turned dark red, 
and the class was as silent as if no one were there. Then, as if trying to control himself, he asked quietly, What are you suggesting? I am suggesting that perhaps colonialism cannot be justified on the grounds that some people decided it was their right to disturb the quiet lives of others. Obviously, this book was written by someone who thinks it is right to put whole villages into forced labor or to summarily liquidate them. Somebody who does not care about other people. This history may make sense to his mind. It does not make sense to me or to anyone else here. Speak for yourself, Patrice. It was the voice of one of the students. I did not have time to notice who he was because Father Joe was talking to me. Patrice, sit down, Father Joe ordered. He was trembling with anger and had lost sight of me. I was not standing, yet he had ordered me to sit. I felt the urge to tell him that I had been sitting down all the time, but I realized that if I said this, I would make things worse. Then he ordered me to follow him into his office. We left the class in turmoil. When he closed the door of his office and sat down behind his desk, I moved to sit down as well. He jumped up from his desk and roared, You will sit when I order you to sit. Who do you think you are? Do you think the Christian mission would invest so much money in you just to train you to become an ideological delinquent? This institution does not tolerate this kind of free thinking. You are here to learn to become a soldier of Christ. And that's it. He pulled a rubber truncheon out of his drawer and came after me, but now I was 16 and would not let myself be beaten. I had already been chastised for looking like a girl and for being lazy, and now I was not going to allow anyone to flog me for participating in class. Father Joe made his move, and I avoided him. That irritated him. He walked from his chair to the other side of the desk where I was standing and ordered, Stay still. I stood still, but when he tried to hit me on the head, I moved away just in time. Instead, he hit a pile of books delicately balanced on a narrow shelf, and they came tumbling down. His temper became red hot. Bend your back! This time I obeyed him, but I made my thoughts go away from my body so that when the first blow fell, I was not even aware of it. What's going on here? It was the voice of another priest, Father Michael, standing outside. It's none of your business. This boy's been interrupting class with subversive questions. While saying this, Father Joe kept lacerating my back. Curiosity is not a crime. When Father Joe kept beating me, Father Michael rushed into the room and grabbed the truncheon from Father Joe's hand. That's enough! I was absent from all of this, having retreated far into myself. I did not care what happened, but I was glad the thing had ripped open a difference of opinion between these priests. Father Superior, who must have heard all the noise, now came running. What's going on here? I am disciplining Patrice, Father Joe told him sullenly. Oh, Patrice, Father, P- Father Superior said patronizingly. 
He is beating Patrice without a cause, Father Michael said, still trying to defend me. You have no authority here. You've been ordered back to Europe. Father Superior's voice was vindictive. What? Father Michael demanded. I made the recommendation to Paris a long time ago. The order came through yesterday. I was waiting for an appropriate time to tell you, and now seems very right. It took a while before Father Michael regained his wits. Then he said, All right, but while I'm still here, I'm going to do what I can. He snatched the truncheon from Father Joe's hand. The two priests glared at each other like two roosters about to fight. Father Joe was the first to give in. I says, Enough, he turned to me. Patrice, you will write two hundred times I will not disobey. Now, get out of here. Remember to mention this at confession and be a good lad from now on. I was filled with deadly hatred toward Father Joe and Father Superior, but I said nothing. You shouldn't have done that, I heard Father Superior say to Father Michael as I stood outside the door listening. I've warned you many times about interfering. After Father Superior had left, I heard Father Father Joe's voice rise. You. It's no wonder you're being shipped back to Europe. Your weakness has cost you your calling. Do your people a favor and get free of this madness, a voice said inside of my head. I never knew where that thought came from, but something was happening to me. up worlds far different from the one we learned about in history class. It was amazing for those of us who were born inland to realize that there was so much water on the earth. Soon the tiny forms of the five continents came into view. As our horizons became wider, it was both wonderful and disturbing. During the break, we would regroup to comment on what we had heard in class. What came to me as good news from the beginning was to learn that the earth is round and that it is hanging in the middle of nowhere and moving very fast. I never knew why I was happy about that, but sometimes I found myself wishing the whole planet would just quit its trajectory and go somewhere else. The world, outside of Africa, came into even sharper focus with French literature which crystallized history by resituating it in a larger social and ethical context. I was astounded by the ease with which Racine and Corniel put words together. How could they make their characters go mad, seek death, and die so poetically? I was stunned by La Fontaine, who told stories strangely similar to the stories grandfather used to tell me. Stories in which animals spoke and acted just like humans. I was astonished by Moliere and his eccentric, egocentric, avaricious characters. I loved Baudelaire. He was blasé toward morality and for a good reason. He had discovered that the whole French world was a monumental lie, and I believed him. 
I was endlessly amazed that all of these people could come alive on the thin pages of a book, always there for anyone who was interested. Because mastery of French was fundamental to good apostolic <laughs> to good apostolic output, we were more concerned with it than with anything else. The study of vocabulary and the memorization of text, especially excerpts from the great French poets, was very important. Composition was crucial. Every Monday we had dictation, something that required the ability to hear and spell words correctly. The dictee was about 250 words. To misspell five words meant failure. Grammatical errors were considered the worst and punctuation errors minor, costing only a quarter of a point. We came to call them capital sins or venial sins. Zero misspellings made you a hero. In composition, we always aimed at using the rarest words possible in order to prove to the teacher how far we had gone into memorizing vocabulary. Rhetoric was conceived of as a technique by which to prove, through argument, that a fact, obviously wrong, was right. This skill was important because it meant that we were equipped to defend Christianity in the face of every contradiction. Once, we were asked to prove, in the middle of the day, that it was night. Dismayed, we looked at each other hopelessly. I wrote that everything came with its opposite, and so behind the shining noontime sun were the dark shadows of midnight. I argued that light could not occur without its opposite, and that the presence of the one was a message about the coming of the other. Then I became crafty. I added that the same principles applied to the present domination of the world by Europe because this condition foretold the coming of its own end. To substantiate my argument, I spoke about the rise and decline of the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of feudalism, and the danger incurred by any person in a position of power, no matter what denomination. I was one inch from denigrating the institution. Father Joe was also a French teacher. He was nicknamed Joe the Spartan. He was the only black priest in a white world of educators. As an African priest, he was dead to Africa, a fine specimen of European brainwashing and indoctrination. No wonder I always annoyed him. For a while, I was stupid enough to think that because he looked like me, he would agree with and support me. Little did I know that he had been brainwashed to brainwash us. We called him Spartan because of his athletic looks. Father Joe played basketball with us every Thursday and was very agile. Ever since the incident in the history class, he and I had each other under surveillance. He knew I did not like him, and so he was going to use his authority to torture me whenever he could. The next day, I was called to his office. I understood immediately that he was going to talk to me about my paper. What do you mean by this essay? I was just trying to write a good essay. It was a tough topic. I knew I didn't have much chance. I said, what do you mean by this essay? Nothing. What's in your mind? Nothing. I was growing tense. My blood was heating up in my veins and I sensed trouble ahead. 
Listen, this is not the kind of mind that the Catholic community is spending money to train. The things you are insinuating here are very grave, and your punishment could be great if Father Superior were told about this. But I did nothing. You are not asked to do nothing. But what did I do then? You insulted God's work. You insulted the effort of thousands of people working to make this place a good place for everyone. But I was asked to write a paper. You can't feel free to say anything you want here. You know that. It has already brought you trouble. I wonder what's in your damn brain that you can't get this one lesson into it. I understood immediately what my own words had done to me. There was no denying that I had something, that I had said something incriminating. All of a sudden, I understood the power of the written word. Its stark naked visibility could not be denied. I apologized to Father Joe, employing the argument I had used before to get myself out of trouble. It consisted in pleading guilty and in asking for forgiveness in the most demeaning way possible acknowledging my ignorance of the sanctity of missionary work and the feebleness of my character. This because it created an atmosphere of mi- This because it created an atmosphere of mini-confession always produced a result favorable to me. Father Joe promised not to bring the paper to the attention of Father Superior, but on one condition, that I never do this again. I had no luck with Father Joe. He was just too present in my life, and his presence weighed on me intolerably. In French classes, he would pick on me every time, asking me to go to the blackboard and write sample outlines for essays in order to show the others what the anatomy of an argument should look like. He knew I was good at arguing things, but he would never say it. I was getting to dread rhetoric classes. As time passed, so we too learned to change our lives in accordance with the rules of the place. We constructed support groups to help each other, since we had learned very quickly that God was not going to give us the aid we so desperately needed. Belonging to a group provided the opportunity to obtain a personal identity far more in tune with our inner impulses. Because we were teenagers, those impulses presented great risk. For most, being part of a group meant being able to break the rules, being able to prove that we could outwit the eyes of God. In the course of three years, my friend Marshall and I had developed a very solid relationship based on intellectual speculation on the pros and cons of being an apostle of the divine. We were joined by others who, like us, wandered lost in the midst of the crowd, trying to make our impossible dreams come true. We named our group the Garibaldis after the Italian nationalist Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was described in our history book as a master of guerrilla warfare and a powerful revolutionary leader. What struck us most about his tempestuous life was his love for insurrection and his ability to escape when captured or condemned to death. I was particularly struck by his attempt in 1862 to capture Rome from Pope Pius and save Italy from the tyranny of Catholicism. For having attempted this, Garibaldi seemed to us 
like a good example of defiance toward priestly authority. Everyone in our group pledged to be bold on all levels, intellectual, spiritual, and psychological, and to always challenge conformity. to ourselves and to each other that we could face the danger of breaking the rules without being caught. Most of our activities consisted in being awake somewhere when we were supposed to be sleeping. After lights out, the priest on duty would join his colleagues at the forum. We would then, one by one, crawl out of the beds where we had been snoring. After arranging our belongings so that it looked like someone was still beneath the blankets, we would rally somewhere at the periphery of the institution just to be together in a freer way. Most of the time, that's all we did. The good in the adventure was the feeling we got of being bold. Soon, however, it became obvious that just getting together was no real deed. All it did was to deprive us of much-needed sleep, especially after long hours of soccer or basketball. So we decided to find ways to be more creative. One night, a Garibaldi named Robert brought a cigarette to our meeting. He always had to be doing something or else he would go crazy, but no one would have ever believed he would go so far into risk-taking. Everyone was shocked. How could he have managed to find a cigarette? There were a few among the teachers who smoked the famous Galois, but to get a cigarette from any one of them was unthinkable. Cigarette smoking was not just prohibited, there was a ban on even bringing cigarettes into the precincts. I can't believe this, Francois said. Where did you get it? Antoine demanded. Father Superior, there was an air of victory in Robert's words. You mean he gave these to you? Antoine asked skeptically. No. I took them from his study. Are you the burglar they reported stole Father Superior's tape recorder a few days ago? Antoine asked. I hadn't heard about this, so I voiced my surprise. Wow, somebody did that? Robert wanted to clarify his deed. He asked for the group's attention and explained, I'm not a thief. I merely liberated a few cigarettes from Father Superior's desk when I met him in his study this morning. The guy who took the tape recorder was from the city. They say he had a gun and everything. You see, thieves come all the way from the city to steal things here because they know there are things to steal. But where did you get the matches, I asked. The cook gave them to me. Do you think we should be doing this? It was Francois speaking. He was uneasy. Robert answered him sarcastically. So, you wanted me to go to Father Superior and ask permission? Would you please give me a couple of your cigarettes? I would like to share them with the Garibaldi group tonight. No. You see, true revolutionaries, true patriots, don't ask or beg, Francois. They already have permission because they carry it in their blood. We could not smoke the cigarette because the only match Robert had brought with him was wet. 
we decided we had to find a fire somewhere so we could share this precious galois. Robert came up with a bright idea. The cooks come from the nearby village. We could not go to the village to get fire, but we could, if we had the guts, ask one of the cooks to give us some dry matches. But in order to do that, we needed someone who would act as an emissary. I had liked being a part of the Garibaldi's as long as our activities consisted in not being asleep when we were supposed to be. For there are times when disobedience heals a very ailing part of the self. It relieves the human spirit's distress at being forced into narrow boundaries for the nearly powerless. Defying authority is often the only power available. But as much as I admired Robert for bringing this cigarette and looked forward to finding out what smoking was like, the idea of being picked for a solo mission scared me. Fortunately, I was not the one selected to retrieve matches. Nevertheless, I was worried. What if the chosen boy was followed? What if a cook decided to report this strange request to a priest? I had been in trouble before, and I did not like feeling I did not feel like jumping into more. I tried to intervene. Wait a minute. What do you think you're doing? We need fire. Someone has to go get it. But we do not need to put ourselves at risk over a cigarette. What are you afraid of? Nothing. I just don't want to throw myself into the hands of those cooks. How do I know which side they're on? This is a good way to find out. We may not be able to make use of our finding, though. But I know the cooks are on our side. Where do you think I got the match in the first place? You mean you didn't steal the useless match from Father Superior's office, too? Well, at least I was able to convince the cook to give me a match. Then you already know one of the cooks. Why don't you yourself go ask him for more instead of risking one of us? All right. I'll do it this time, but next time, someone else has to prove he's a Garibaldi. I've proven that I'm one. So, Robert left to get the matches. He soon returned with them and a couple more local cigarettes called Camellia Sport that the cook had given him. We lit the cigarettes and passed them around. We did not know how to inhale, so we just took the smoke into our mouths and let it out again, feeling good anyway because we were defying authority. What we were really enjoying was the risk. While we were smoking, Antoine observed, This must be why the fathers are so very, very pleasant. See, they have a good education, a roof over their heads, and the promise of visiting the divine realm anytime via cigarettes, wine, and beer. He took a puff, he took a puff of the cigarette he held between his fingers and offered it to me, inquiring, and how have you been, Patrice? I knew he wanted to talk to me about my growing reputation as a troublemaker, but I did not like, I did not feel like anyone spoiling my evening. I just wanted to go on enjoying the bliss of the present moment. Antoine didn't press the matter, and we remained quiet, savoring our first cigarette.